Halt. Are you uncomfortable yet? <laughs> Didn't take much, did it? All it took was for me to not talk, not do anything, not move. And we all felt it. For how many of us this week was that the only minute where something wasn't distracting us this week? We weren't working on something, we weren't, you know, rushing through traffic, we weren't looking at our phone, thinking about the next thing that we had to do, we weren't watching TV, we didn't have music playing in the background, somebody wasn't talking to us. For how many of us were just those few seconds, the first time this week that we were completely silent and completely still? Makes us uncomfortable. You know, how many of you wanted to, you know, reach into your pocket and look at your phone just to have something to do or literally yell out at me like, this is awkward, say something. I, I read a, a guy this week who said that the, the term awkward silence has pretty much uh, been just removed from our vocabulary because of how uncomfortable we are with it, that now all silences are awkward. And so we're just uncomfortable with silence and with slowing down. We live in a very frenetic, fast-paced culture where we always have to have something to do, something in front of us, something to distract us. And if that's true of every walk of life, then I know it's also true of our walk with Jesus. And so in the text that Tiffany read for us, our text for this morning, John 15, there is one word that absolutely dominates this passage. It is the word abide. It occurs 11 times in this passage. And all that abide means is to stop, to slow down, to remain in one place for an extended period of time. And Jesus says that if we are going to know him, that if we are going to love him, if we are going to bear fruit, from our relationship with him, then we have to abide with him. We have to stop, slow down, and spend time with Jesus. And so if you're a Christian in this room, I think intellectually uh, you know that. You know that you have to spend time with Jesus. But experientially and practically, it might be a little harder. You wonder, okay, well, well how do I do that? I think Jesus knows that we're going to ask that question, and so he tells us, and he gives us a picture illustration, and the illustration that he uses is an agricultural one. He uses vines and branches, and the way that vines and branches work are on their own, branches are pretty much worthless. They can't, uh, they obviously can't hunt, they can't create their own food, they can't make their own food. They are entirely dependent beings. And the only way that they can survive is if they are connected to a vine. And the vine is what supplies their life, it supplies their nutrients. Everything that the branch needs is found in the vine. And so in this illustration, we are the branches. We are entirely dependent on the vine, which is Jesus. And we have to abide in that vine, abide in him in order to receive nourishment and life in order that we can bear fruit. 
And in this passage, Jesus gives us three specific ways that we can abide. And there are just a whole host of ways that we can abide. But in this passage, Jesus picks out three. So if you read verse 7 and then verse 10 with me. In verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Then verse 10, If you keep my Father's commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And so there are three things. In order to abide, we have to abide in His Word, is one. And then we can ask whatever we wish. I I read that to be prayer, is two. And then the third one, if we keep our Father's commandments, then we will abide in His love. And so we have spending time in His Word, spending time in prayer, and keeping our Father's commandments. Obedience. Those are the three things that Jesus highlights here in order to abide in his love and receive nourishment from him. And if you're anything like me, when I you know, read those three, when I hear those three things, just pray, read your Bible, and, and obey God, I'm, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I get it. I've, I've heard that before. Like, that sounds good, but I, I'm going to abide in God, abide in his love. I kind of expected something a little more, a little more oomph behind it. And so I I think for some reason, we don't like ordinary things, you know, especially when it comes to God, to the supernatural and experiencing him, we expect supernatural things. You know, if we want to abide with God, we think, you know, maybe he'll write a message for me in the sky with lightning, or I'll have a dream that'll, you know, tell me something that's going to happen three years from now. And then when it finally does come true, I'll know that back then that he was speaking to me and I was abiding with him. Reminds me of a story I heard one time. There was a village that had flooded and everyone was evacuating, but there was one Christian man who was absolutely convinced that God was going to save him. And so, you know, the, the water was starting to pour in. It was up around his, his knees, and, you know, all his neighbors were rushing out, and they just had a little, you know, rowboat canoe. And they said, hop in. Like, we'll, we'll save you. We'll, we'll get you out of here. And he says, no, no, no. You guys go ahead. I am confident that God is going to save me. So the neighbors left. Water kept pouring in. It was up, you know, coming in the windows. His living room was flooded. He was treading water at this point. And, you know, some people on, in a motorboat came by, and they said, like, get in, get in. We are going to save you. And he said, no, no, no. I have faith. God is going to save me. So that boat left. Everybody was out of the village. He was the only guy left. The water kept pouring in. At this point, the house was completely full. He had to go up onto the roof, and it was about to sweep him away. And the Coast Guard comes in with a helicopter. They lower the basket down and they say, like, dude, like, this is your last chance. Get in. We are going to save you. And the man says, no, I have faith. God is going to save me. So the helicopter left and the man died. And when he got to heaven, he was like, I mean, God, this is great. I'm glad to be here. But why didn't you save me? God was like, what are you talking about? I gave you a canoe, a motorboat, and a helicopter. Like, what, 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 what more do you want from me? And so one, one author that I read this week said that too often we look for the Spirit in the extraordinary when God has promised to be present in the ordinary. 
The practices of prayer and song, preaching and offering, baptism and communion, these are the canoes and boats and helicopters that God graciously sends our way. He meets with us, changes us, and communes with us through very ordinary means. And so if your reaction to hearing that the way that you can abide in God, abide in Christ and in his love, is to spend time in his word, to spend time in prayer, and to follow his commandments, if if your response to that is to be bored or unimpressed, then I would just encourage you to reconsider exactly what God is offering to you through these things. And, And so when it comes to spending time in this word, just stop and consider what this is. Okay, we know that in the beginning, in Genesis 1, that God spoke and everything came into existence out of nothing. God speaks and galaxies are formed. He can bring everything out of nothing simply by his word. He can bring everything out of nothing. He can bring life out of death by his word. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Mark 4, you know, the disciples and Jesus are in the boat and the the waves are pouring over, the wind is howling, and Jesus gets up and he simply speaks. And the wind and the waves are calm. And we get to carry that powerful word, this powerful word around us in our pockets. This is, I I genuinely believe, the most powerful thing that we have on earth. And in order to abide in Jesus, then we have to abide in his word. This is where he has revealed himself to us. And there is no drive-through service when it comes to spending time in God's word. I remember I was in seminary and I walked into class one day and my professor told us all to open our Bibles to a specific passage, and we were going to just study it silently on our own for 30 minutes, and we were, had to write down all the insights that we saw, and at the end of the 30 minutes, we had to pick like our wisest, most insightful, just mind-blowing insight. And so we start looking, and time goes by, and you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 minutes, ding, and we go around and we share, and then our professor asked us, at what point in the 30 minutes... Did you get your big thing? And about 90% of us, we all saw it after the 20-minute mark. I found that when it comes to preaching and sermon prep, um, you know, when I first started preaching, I would get my assignment, and I would immediately start writing. But now, if I know I'm preaching on Sunday, I start studying on Monday, I, I found that I try and wait as long as possible to start writing, usually till about Thursday or maybe even Friday, because I know that you cannot rush time in God's Word. It is by stopping, by spending an extended period of time, by looking deep into the treasures of this book that you will see Jesus. Reading God's Word is a lot more like a crock pot than a microwave, okay? It takes a lot of time. And I don't think that it's an accident that in verse 7, right after telling us to abide in his word, that Jesus then tells us to spend time in prayer, to ask whatever we wish that he will grant to us that the Father may be glorified. So after spending time in his word, we then spend time in prayer. Let me tell you, when you do the first half of that, spend time in his word, but you don't do the second half, spending time in prayer, 
your soul gets very ugly very quick. Uh, Mark Boffman was joking around with me a few months ago. He asked me, uh, what cemetery did you study at? And unfortunately, I knew exactly what he meant. There are a lot of seminaries that have a reputation for taking students who, when they enter, are uh, whole, holistically devoted followers of Christ, head and heart. But by the time they leave, yeah, they can read Greek and Hebrew, but their faith has been dead for a very long time. I think Jesus was on to something when he looked at the Pharisees and he called them whitewashed tombs. These were the people who would practically memorize the entire Old Testament. They had all the knowledge of God that you could possibly have, but they were dead. And so there is a huge difference between knowing God and knowing about God. And we learn to know God by spending time in his word. And then that knowledge gets transformed into uh, a heart knowledge through prayer. And so a lot of times after the service, you know, we like to respond in four ways. And one of those is through singing. And we say that singing is something that moves what we have heard and know about God from our heads to our hearts. And I think prayer does the exact same thing. Another way to say it would be that prayer transforms information into intimacy. So I've been meeting uh, with Mark Oshman. We have like eight Marks around here. So, you know, Mark and I meet a lot. And over the last few weeks, he's been really referencing Ephesians 3 recently. And in Ephesians 3, it's a, a prayer that Paul prays. He prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So notice that, that you may know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So not a love that skips knowledge or ignores knowledge. You cannot love what you do not know. The reason why I love my wife or love basketball or love food is because I know those things. You cannot love what you do not know, but Paul prays that we would have a love that surpasses knowledge. It goes beyond just the head and into our heart. It transforms what we love. And so when we pray, we are confessing the truth that we know about God, and we are asking him to then transform us by it, to meet us in prayer, and to change us, to change our desires, to change our affections, affections, to change our hearts so that we will love what he loves and be conformed more into his image. Which leads us into the third thing, the third way that Jesus tells us to abide. If we keep Jesus' commandments, we will abide in his love, just as he kept the Father's commandments. And so if abiding in the word transforms our heads, and if abiding in prayer transforms our hearts, then keeping God's commandments, that transforms and moves our hands. And so knowing God and knowing about God should naturally uh, express itself and move outward by obeying God with our hands and with our actions. And so obedience and submission and following commands and rules, they get a really bad rap in our culture. You know, we live in a culture that says, do whatever you want. You do you. You define your own truth. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And whatever you want and however you choose to do it, that will bring you the most joy. Well, notice in verse 11, Jesus gives us these 
commandments, these ways of abiding in him. And then he says, these things I have spoken to you that your joy may be full. And so we have two different words coming at us. One from culture that says, do whatever you want and you will be happy. And then we have God telling us, do what I want you to do and you will be happy. And so I I think Mark shared an illustration a few weeks ago about a goldfish. And a goldfish was just living in the bowl and then he decided, I want to be free. I want to do whatever I want. I'm going to go live in a tree. And it did not go well for the goldfish. Okay, you can choose to eat McDonald's every single meal for a month. That is, you are free to do that, but your life is going to suck if you do that. Okay, so so we need to rethink freedom and joy. Okay, so freedom isn't the absence of all restrictions. Freedom is the presence of the right restrictions and living according to that. And so in order to know Jesus more, in order to love Jesus more, then we have to live by the rules and the commandments and the right restrictions that he has given us. So the the creator and the inventor and the designer of something knows how it works best. And we as God's creatures need to trust that our creator knows how we live and operate and work best. And it is by obedience, by submitting to God's commandments, by submitting to him and and keeping uh, our lives in step according to his word. That is what brings us the most joy. And that will increase our our love and our, our relationship with Jesus. So Jesus teaches us to keep his commandments and that by keeping them that our joy will be full. And then he and then he does something interesting in verse 12. And so when I first read it, I thought that uh, Jesus was just going to be giving us an application, uh, one application out of many. So the passage is kind of split up into two paragraphs. Uh, And in the first one, I thought he was just giving us the teaching. And then in the second one, I thought he was just giving us one possible application. But then I looked at it more. And in the first paragraph, Jesus said, if you keep my commandments... And then later, justify as I have kept my Father's commandments. Okay, they're plural. But then in verse 12, he says, this is my commandment. It's singular. The implication being that the one commandment that Jesus is about to give fulfills all of the commandments that he has given us previously. He's not giving us one potential application. He is giving us the only application of how to practice what we've studied so far. And the one thing that Jesus tells us to do, the one commandment that Jesus gives to us is to love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And I think a lot of us probably need some corrective surgery when it comes to our understanding of love. Uh, This is the second time that Jesus has brought up uh, love in terms of laying down your life and serving others. Uh, This is the second time he's brought it up in the upper room, the last meal with his disciples. And so it's so important that on the last night of his life, where he has just a few remaining hours left, he chooses to bring up the same thing twice. 
And so if you missed us a few weeks ago, we were in John 13, and uh, we you know, studied Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and that was just the, the perfect picture of service and laying down your life. Uh, I'd recommend you, you go online and listen uh, to that sermon. Uh, but, but there's one thing that I want us to notice for this week. Notice the context that Jesus says that we experience the greatest love possible. No man has greater love than this, than someone laid down his life for who? His friends. According to Jesus, friendship is the highest possible love that you and I can know. And so Jesus did a lot of miracles, but one that I don't think we talk about nearly enough is the one where Jesus had 12 friends well into his 30s. I'm serious. I remember, you know, we were back in Birmingham. We just moved here a few months ago, and I had just finished school, and I was really, really lonely. You know, it, it was the first time in my life where I'd been out of school, and when I wasn't, you know, sitting in class for hours every day and staying up late with the same people, you know, misery loves company. You know, when I, when I didn't have a custom-built schedule meant for relationship building, I found out that I was really bad at it. And I was just like a kindergartner wandering around, wondering how to make friends. And it's a really sad picture to imagine a a 25-year-old man doing that. But unfortunately, I don't think it's very uncommon. I think it happens all the time. I I think women are naturally better at this. You know, for some reason, I think they just... uh, value vulnerability and relationship building. They tend to do this right off the bat, but men, for some reason, maybe it's because we're taught to be self-sufficient and completely autonomous. We feel like to admit that we're lonely and that we want other people in our lives as some form of weakness. But, but I'll speak to everybody, but specifically to the men in the room. Let me let you in on a little secret. All of us are lonely. All of us want more friends. All of us are dying for somebody to reach out and to ask us, how are you doing? Where are you struggling? How can I pray for you? How can I come alongside of you to know you, know your life, know your family, know your friends? How can I love you? The only problem is that we're men, and that makes us uncomfortable. And so let me ask you as a church, in order to fulfill this commandment to love one another in the context of friendship, give somebody the gift of going second. Nobody wants to go first, so give somebody the gift of going second. You be the first one to reach out, to let down your walls, to show some vulnerability, to ask how somebody else is doing, and I guarantee you, you will see a ripple effect, just like a forest fire of people saying, I have been dying for somebody to ask me how I'm doing. And I want us to be a church where friendship and love and vulnerability and intimacy are not just between families and spouses, but also between friends. So this has been a a bit of a backward sermon so far. Uh, Usually here at Redemption Parker, we spend about 80% of our time studying doctrine, you know, 
who Jesus is, what he has done, what God has done for us through Christ, and then uh, we move towards application, and, and rightly so. We want our lives to be rooted in the gospel, and then we want the application to come from that. Um, but this has been a very application-heavy sermon, and that's been on purpose, just you know, talking about love and abiding. Those are very broad concepts, so it would be very easy to just hang out at 30,000 feet and you know, yeah, that sounds great, but I just don't really know how to apply that. So it's been intentionally application-heavy on the front end. But I do want us to circle back and to look at a few key pieces of doctrine that hold all of this together. So look at verse 2 with me. Jesus says that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now those are two very different options. Those are two very different realities. You can either not bear fruit, in which case Jesus said that you will be thrown away. Verse 6 illuminates that a little more. It says you'll be thrown away and that you will be burned in a fire. So that's one option. Or you can bear fruit, in which case you will simply be disciplined, that you will be pruned. You'll have parts of your life cut back in order that you may eventually bear more fruit. It hurts in the moment, but it is for your ultimate good. So those are two very different realities. You can either be discarded completely and burned in fire, or you can be disciplined like a a son and a daughter and a child of God. So how do you know which one you are? These are very real and very different options, and we need to know which one we are experiencing. In order to know that, we have to back up to verse 1. Verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So if you've been with us as we've been going through John, you'll recognize that Jesus is using one of his famous I am statements. And these I am statements are claims that Jesus makes to be the Messiah, to be the promised one who is going to fulfill uh, everything that the Old Testament has promised, one who will save the world. And this is the last one. This is number seven. I am the true vine. And what Jesus is doing, he's picking up on some Old Testament language. And in the Old Testament, Israel, God's people, God's chosen people, they are often compared to a vine or a vineyard. What do vine and vineyards do? They, they produce fruit, or at least they should. But whenever this metaphor is used, whenever Israel is compared to a vine, they are compared to an unfruitful vine, one that has not borne fruit. They've been unfaithful. They have broken their covenant with God, and therefore they did not bear fruit. And so every time that this image is used, it's used in context of judgment, that God is going to judge Israel for their unfaithfulness and their uh, lack of fruit. And so then Jesus comes along after Israel has just failed over and over and over and over again, and he says, I am the true vine. Where you have failed, I have succeeded. Where you disobeyed, I obeyed. Where you did not bear fruit, I bore fruit. So I am the true vine. I'm the successful one. And so if you want to escape that judgment that you deserve, then you have to be in me. 
You can't bear fruit on your own. You're the branch. You can only bear fruit if you are connected to me, the vine. That is how you can escape judgment. So if you ever go camping, there is a safety precaution that you can take when putting out your campfire. And so after the fire has died down, after all the flames are gone, you can take an unburnt stick and just place it in the middle, standing straight up. And the reason that you do that is kind of for an alibi to where, say you leave and later a forest fire breaks out and nobody knows who did it. Well, after the forest fire dies down, you can come back and in your campfire where the fire once was, your unburnt stick will still be standing there untouched. And so you can prove it definitely wasn't me, maybe it was somebody over there. And so the safest place to be is where the fire has already been. And so when it comes to salvation and to the judgment of God and to abiding in God, the safest place to be is where the judgment has already been. The safest place to be is in Christ. The safest place to be is the cross. And so we have two very different realities. You can either be discarded and thrown into the fire yourself, or you can go to where the fire and the judgment have already been. And so if you're an unbeliever in the room, then just let me plead with you. Go to the cross. Go to where the judgment has already been. Go to the cross and see the love of God that he would lay down his life, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. People who had rebelled and rejected and sinned against him. He didn't die for people who loved him. He died for people who hated him. And you can move from being an enemy to a friend if you look to Christ by faith and say, you are the true vine. I'm not. I can't do it on my own. And that's the whole point of the spiritual disciplines, those three things that we talked about. Scripture reading and prayer and keeping God's commandments, they are only good insofar as they take you to the cross. Because there you will spend time with Jesus. You will stop. You will slow down. You will remember what God has done for you. You will remember that your biggest problem has been taken care of, that you are loved, that you are accepted by God, that you are safe in Him. And then you can go out and live your life. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are so gracious to us in that while we were your enemies, you died for us. You took our sin and our shame upon you, on your own shoulders. So, Spirit, I ask that you would take us to the cross. Would you show us Jesus, show us to him as the crucified Savior. Would you help us to see him and to love him, to have our hearts and our affections raised for him? Would you conform us more into his image? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.